0: This episode is brought to you by Liquid IV. Guys, if you don't know what Liquid IV is, we'll buckle up because I'm gonna throw you a game changer. Liquid IV is a hydration multiplier that not only tastes great, but is a non-GMO electric light drink mix. love it won't be disappointed so please give it a shot and get more fuel for life's adventures now back to the show Greetings and salutations, all you beautiful, beautiful people. And welcome to another episode of Art of the Beholder, a show dedicated to all things eclectic in the world of art, where we do deep dives into deep cuts and help you understand why damn things matter. I'm your host, Novo Day. And today we're going to be talking about art primarily in music, but also in acting, theater fashion honestly a little of everything i mean even fuck even we're gonna be talking about mimes as well and we're gonna do that through the career of david bowie one of the all-time greats Today, of course, I am joined again by one of our top contributors, the very sexy and handsome T. Buck, one of our heterosexual life mates. Uh, welcome, Mr. Buck.
1: Hey, Novo. Uh, it's great being here. It's a great time to talk about this gentleman since his birthday was a couple of days ago.
0: We just passed another uh, birthday um of Mr. Bowie and I I also I was thinking of the two of us uh, arguably you're probably the bigger fan of the two of us wouldn't you say
1: yeah yeah he's he's definitely David Bowie's definitely one in my top five top five
0: okay so I know you'll have a lot to say about this guy um before we go any further of course we all know that David Bowie is was and always will be an icon an icon for the ages of icon for of all time, essentially. But to really understand why, of course we need to do a little background. Bowie was born David Robert Jones on January 8th, 1947 in Brixton, London, England. As a young child, he was already seen as very gifted and talented, and of course, that led him to go down the road of an artistic journey through his life. In fact, his father was very supportive of this, and he did a lot of things in his power to make sure that he could follow his dreams So uh, Bowie did just that. He studied art, music design, and yes, even mime, as I mentioned earlier. In fact, he was going to throw it all away to become a mime at one point in his career. Lucky he didn't, or we wouldn't be talking about him right now. Now, before we go on, uh, I do want to touch about something that involves an aesthetic of David Bowie, something that has always, that you see in every single picture of his, Cover design, any art related to David Bowie, we, we have to talk about this one thing, and that is his left eye. Now, that actually changed in his youth. And that's why I'm talking about it now. And a lot of people for years thought this was a gimmick or, or contacts or, you know, this is just a part of his image as he always wanted to be alien looking different, all those things. Of course, that helped with his aesthetic. But the, the truth is, is as a kid, he got into a, a fight with one of his friends over a girl, and he just got clocked in the eye. He actually tried to go through surgery after surgery to fix this, but uh, the damage was done. It was it was never completely healed. It it could never fully be repaired essentially. And to this and and throughout his whole life, he had a permanently dilated pupil. That's why it looks that way. A lot of people think it it there's a different color to it and that's just actually a bit of an optical illusion. Uh, it has everything to do with how the pupil is permanently dilated.
1: And that's the story. I always thought he was wearing like a contact lens or something like that. I didn't know this until he died He died that this happened.
0: I, I thought he was born with it until I did research for this episode. I thought he was born with it. And I did think there were two different colors. I, I had no idea that it was <laughs> essentially an injury. Yeah. And that they tried to correct it. And that's part of the reason it came out that way. And he just kind of embodied kind of part of his the aesthetic element of his career wouldn't you say about that mystery and yeah like that, yeah, that alien that you know and we'll talk about all of those visual elements of his career as well as we're diving into it but that's the that's essentially the heart of the true story and that's probably one of our our very first um you know fun facts as we go through this episode but from there as he got older he, of course, was driven more and more into specifically going down the path of becoming a musician. There was a lot of things, I think, that he was into, and we'll talk about this a little later as well. Obviously, theater is a huge, huge part of his career. It's arguably intertwined with his entire DNA as an artist, but it was really music that he wanted to pursue. So once he was ready to really take on a career in music, he went the traditional route like a lot of us do. And he essentially just wanted to be a member of a band. He never, I don't think, initially wanted to be the the front runner, the top guy, the the only name on the album. And so he did that. He went from one band to the next, to the next, to the next. And unfortunately, he just found one failure after the next, after the next, after the next. And of course, he got sick and fucking tired of this cycle. And that ultimately led to his solo career, which is where our journey really begins in dissecting this man as uh, one of the most influential artists of all time. So like I said, Bowie is an icon because he's an artist that defied, God, all expectations of what someone in his position could be, crossing genres, artistic platforms, styles, and even mediums. And like I said, he became the most influential artist of all time. Now, to understand this, this is where we have to dissect, discuss, and really go through his career. And the first uh, piece of our thesis that I want to go into is music versus theater, that I would argue that it was so intertwined. Of course, he uh, he focused primarily on the music side of his career, but there was such a theatrical element in essence to everything he did. And that's what really created some of these artistic movements and him actually creating genres and things like that, uh, like glam rock, for example. And we'll go into that a little later as well. And so to start this journey, we, of course, have to start with uh, honestly an outlier to his discography, and that's David Bowie. One, David Bowie, David Bowie in 1967. I want to start by saying that this album was clearly him trying to figure out what he wanted to do and wanted to say.
1: You see this a lot in artists in their early careers too um it's kind of like it's kind of like you you feel like a, pretty rare that somebody kind of knocks it out of the park on their first one the first album like uh
0: um, you did it on a second one so yeah yeah so <laughs> i
1: i think there's always artists i mean you know you know the one band you'll constantly hear us talk about on this on this podcast is radiohead pablo honey to okay computer it's night and day uh um, evolution so, yep. yeah it's an evolution so i i always think you know, it's same with the Beatles I mean if you listen to their first
0: you're exactly right yeah. because as, as I was doing the research for this episode uh, David Bowie won I mean the guy would talk about coats and rubber bands like <laughs> he clearly didn't know what he wanted to say it yeah. was clear though on the other you know in his defense that he had talent he was he clearly wanted to be a songwriter and and push his voice into this medium he just didn't know how to do it yet which i think is a good way to david bowie too which is uh, it's commonly called S- space odyssey and i didn't actually know this until i again did the research but uh, space odyssey was called david bowie again yeah. it, i don't know who fucking thought that was a good idea but it, it confused so many different people yeah that they had to rename it three years later in its reissue in 1972. And now, of course, we all know it as Space Odyssey. And that was his, arguably, his very first hit. I, I wouldn't even say arguably. It was his very first hit. It was Space Odyssey. And space, fuck space, me. Oddity. space Oddity. What was I saying? Odyssey. Oh, my bad. Yes. Space oddity is what I what what I meant to be saying. No, no, no. It's fine. No, please correct me. No, you did the right thing. (laughs) Uh, But uh, space oddity is uh, he had so much to fucking say right yeah. he had it was a finally fully realized album and that's that's one of the reasons i i realized that it took him multiple years to put this second output out and then from there for almost a decade he put an album out every year
1: yeah and it's funny when you look at these artists especially back in this you know 50 60s and 70s you know example from the beatles it's how much how many albums they put out in such a short time and oh my i feel God. like yeah, you, you know, now it's it's you don't really see that. That's actually, a you know, an outlier rather than the norm uh, to see somebody come out with that. But it just shows you kind of how some of these record companies were just kind of they were just turning out records, forcing, you know, a lot of their artists to do this. At the same time, it shows also how
0: talented.
1: Yeah, talented. Touring probably wasn't as big of a deal back then, but like just the talent that they could put out. Um, how much music that they had. A lot of creators today, when they do music, they if they don't release everything, you know, they'll have a large back catalog of, of a lot of things in there. So, I mean, he was just turning out stuff, and and Space Oddity, you know, another thing that was kind of cool about it is it came out days before you know the Apollo Eleven moon landing. So it was kind of like, yeah, it, it was just kind of like a the stars aligned uh, there, <laughs> uh, um, which which was kind of a cool. You know, to be alive, not just because of all the cool innovations, but also the societal kind of movements that were happening at the same time.
0: And uh, we, of course, have to talk about highlights from the album. We're not going to do this for every single album, uh, but uh, we need to talk about Major Tom. This is the first time yeah. we saw character uh, and him embodying character in his uh, musical and his uh, musical journeys as in his body work. It went from the album went from. Uh, like I said, David Bowie 1 was a very folky, folk, mm-hmm. you know, acoustic. And of course, Space Oddity had elements of that, but he he started to really embrace rock and roll, finally. And because it was, for lack of a better way to put it, I mean, the album really rocks compared to its predecessor.
1: What, what do you think about Space Odd- Oddity other than, obviously, the timing and what was going on in the world? But really, if you listen to that, that song is way different than anything. A lot of things that you heard at the time where you were starting to get into some of that experimental part of it. How, why do you think that that was so became such a hit? Absolutely. I mean, it it, it was
0: so different than everything that
1: was out at the time.
0: Yeah. And I think and 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 adding to uh, our main thesis is he had to innovate things he had to he knew that he had to of course tap into a pop sound and sell records to to make a name but he knew he wanted to be different and we see that and i cannot wait to talk about this we see that through his entire discography that he not only evolves and takes risks and innovates but he also tries to uh, change with the times evolve and like a lot of artists in this time these late 60s and 70s when they developed a sound they would a lot of them would stay in that sound right and that's why after the 70s you wouldn't really see their career continue but bowie we saw let's dance we saw super creeps. We saw a lot of things all the way to his, his passing uh, and it con- consistently changed. And I think that was, I think having that approach to his songwriting was why he not only invented things, but continued to uh, gain an audience and, and really connect with people <laughs> decade after decade. Before uh, and before we go on from Space Oddity Oddity, I do want to touch on something that we've talked about many, many times. And as you're talking about, you know, out like, you know, labels forcing musicians to, you know, put out a lot of stuff or them just wanting to. I think it it comes down to they weren't allowed to hide behind production. Yeah. And when. A lot of these guys and gals, you know, there was a lot of uh, there was a lot of genius songwriters on on many ends of the spectrum, men, women, et cetera, uh, when they couldn't stop. Like Paul McCartney is another example of that. Like once they started writing and getting into this zone, they just like couldn't stop and they have this excessive amount of output. And a lot of that is just pure unadulterated talent. Because back then you hit fucking play or record. And uh, they had to do these in one takes or two takes. Of course, they would rehearse a lot before, you know, they would work it out before they recorded it. But those recordings are so telling. And the time, the little time that they had to make them is incredibly telling, too. So I just want to say that before we move on.
1: They had, uh, you know, everything was recorded on tapes and and for you kids out there that a piece of a film that had you would change a signal on it with magnets basically and you would write the you know the music to a tape you only had so many tracks on that tape and it was expensive and you had to manually cut things and
0: right they could edit but not like fucking pro tools right oh like, no 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 change yeah, they could edit or change uh your vocal harmonies, you know settings or what have you right yeah so that's my but point.
1: it was an analog process it was and still to this day, some people do still record on tape. But I mean, it, it was a it was a totally different painstaking process back then. So it took a lot of time. You, it's like uh, photography uh, before digital cameras. Uh, you can't take a million pictures or a million selfies and pick out the right one. You had to, you know, kind of think and, and plan it out. And it was the same thing, you know, when film. It was the same thing in music.
0: I think that's a, a good time to move on to the man who sold the world, 1970. I don't, uh, as I was making notes about this, I didn't have a lot to say about the man who sold the world except for honestly the the title track. Uh, I, I think that's a wonderful piece. And for the longest time, I thought it was a Nirvana song because they just had yeah. an amazing cover of it. And as a kid, I was, you know, I would like have arguments with people. It's like, that's not a David Bowie song. That's a Nirvana song. And they would laugh at me because I just didn't know yet.
1: Yeah, no, I, you know, when I was a kid too, I mean, the, I thought that was a Nirvana song. It was from the premiered it on MTV and plugged uh, that famous thing. Uh, it wasn't until I really like I got a little older. I think I was in high school and I started listening and, and you hear in that album where he said that was an old David David Bowie song. You know, that's when I it first kind of clicked. Actually, that's how I got into David Bowie was kind of tr- because of that was trying to backtrack from that song. So
0: is there anything else you want to say about the man who sold the world before I move on? Cause no, I, feel I like. I, I Depending think the, on the person, it, it is pivotal, but I just don't have as much to say.
1: Yeah, I, I think, you know, I think the biggest thing with that probably, you know, the, the, besides the music was probably the cover Um, yes. that was part of it. Um, we need to touch know, on that, actually. Yes. Yeah, I, I think, you know, one of the things that David Bowie kind of brought kind of to the forefront was a blend of of sex. and a Um, you know, that was a big thing part of his, um, persona, image, his image was this, uh, which was, you know, times were very different back then and was kind of seen. And I would argue that it was,
0: again, I, I don't want to go down the rabbit hole of uh, what his sexual orientation was. Was he gay? Was he bisexual? Yada, yada, yada. I always look at that as another character. He would often become a character, uh, and he would put it into the narrative of the album.
1: Yeah, I, I think that was part of it too. I think it was, you know, like you said, each almost each piece or set of albums was a was almost like a movement and a symphony or something like that. It was, it was a different, it was a different character. It was a different uh, time period for him, and he he took it and he. You know, he used that as his inspiration. I think with a lot of things. I, I think one thing the push on this though is he really kind of changed. I think the thoughts of a lot of people or how they interpret masculinity. Um, Absolutely. And that that was a huge thing. I mean, I you look yeah, at guys 50,
0: over fifty years ago,
1: So fifty years ago, and you look at a guy like Harry Styles today, which they're like, you know, he's wearing you know women's clothes and stuff like this, and people are like, oh my god, he's a fashion couldn't icon. Could no have done like without this. Bowie. Couldn't have done that without Bowie at all. No.
0: Uh, The next album on our list is Hunky Dory, 1971, where the first word, as I was listening to the album again, the first word that popped in my head in terms of songwriting was richness. It was just so Mm -hmm. rich with its uh, use of uh, tones and chords, uh, melodic figures, harmonies. This is when he was really starting to become, you know, come in his own as a songwriter. And obviously the the fucking songs themselves say a lot about who he was surrounding himself with. I mean, there's an entire song called Andy Warhol and a song song for Bob Dylan. Dylan. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, I love, I love this era cause they were so, you could see so much overlap and so much influence on each other. And you see these old pictures of them partying and smoking and drinking and uh, I, I mean, obviously, we see a lot of that now, but there was something about that time where you saw all these great minds. Almost like, you know, I look at it like Socrates and Aristotle getting together to hang out to talk about philosophy, and these genius musicians getting together to talk about what they want to do next on their next album, you know?
1: This is kind of the album where we saw the birth of Ziggy Stardust a little bit. A little bit. Well, I would say it's more with the Life on Mars, the song there. And that's like. You know, I, I know that's a very popular David Bowie song. It's one of my favorites um, songs of all time. Um, so, yeah, they, this this was another big album for me. Um, one of the first ones I was also introduced to. Um, obviously, the next one we'll talk about. Um, we should probably <laughs> well, get to have that to. one. Yeah,
0: I think, we would, I think we would get we would, there would be a mob after us. if We didn't talk about Ziggy Stardust. So, <laughs> So let's go ahead and dive in shall we Uh, before we move on from hunky dory i do want to talk about how he would end albums i think uh, beginning and ending albums is uh very powerful we could probably have a whole episode on just uh structure like that but he would often do this kind of spoken word poetry song hybrid i don't know if you remember those but uh it would him kind of be yeah talking to the audience, just kind of spoken word poetry, and then it may turn into a song. And it was really the last time he did this was on hunky dory. And that's where I think we saw a complete transformation into the incredibly famous, The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars. Mm -hmm. Uh, Where First, we have to talk about where a lot of these ideas came from, because like I said with Hunky Dory, he was clearly surrounding himself by a lot of other influential people and in his... What what, what was he doing (laughs) with those influential people do you think? A lot of trucks. A lot of fucking trucks. And we saw that in his, uh, when he talked about how he came up with the idea, he said it was a fusion of... um, He had a long um, career with He produced some of his albums and um, and Lou Reed of uh, the Velvet Underground. He even worked with him on a very controversial Transformer album, and he saw them together as one entity in his mind as Ziggy Stardust. And that's that's where our journey begins on this album.
1: Uh, I think some people consider this the magnum opus of David Bowie. Um, I don't
0: i would disagree but i can yeah. see why people would argue
1: that yes yeah i i agree with you on that i i i'm not i i think it's another album which we'll talk about here in a, in a little bit but no i think you you know you look at the classics again i mean the tracks on here um moon age daydream that's another, my favorite i love that, that song. you bring it up you yeah brought it
0: up, you brought it up too early yeah that was my favorite fucking album or song on the album
1: yeah, yeah, and it, it's mine as well. And uh I think it, it was cool when it regained popularity a bit after uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, when that was one of the... Perfect soundtrack. Yeah, one of the greatest soundtracks. Um I don't think we can argue with that. But, I mean, yeah, I mean, you got Starman on there. Um All the songs on there. It, it, it's, it's one of those albums, like, my dad used to always say why he liked the Eagles so much is, like, almost every song was a hit. This is another one uh like rock and roll suicide hang on to yourself lady stardust um i'm forgetting a big one here um
0: and again this is where he's embodying he's embodying a character he became uh, he famously became this char- character to a fault obviously when he uh, went into his cocaine addicted uh, drug induced coma of years of of uh, of where this character in in David Bowie or David Jones really would blur. And uh, when we see a lot of his musical output kind of mirror that as in the years to come, Uh, and, and we, we could see that being pushed into Aladdin saying, in 1973 and uh, what would surprise a lot of people is this is after all those great albums and all this great music this is actually his first number one album it finally kind of hit home for i think a lot of people that this guy was going to be around for a while and he had a very famous history of pushing into this character of ziggy stardust a lot insane uh pinups will probably skip just because that's an album of covers yeah and and really going into some dark paths during Diamond Dogs. I don't want to go too much far, f- too much further until uh, until I know you may have more to say about Ziggy. Is there anything else you want to touch before we move on?
1: No, I, I mean like Aladdin scene. I think I love album cover art, and that's probably his most famous album cover. Uh, you've seen it. I don't know, recreated how many times. Uh, like one of the most recent. I think popular renditions of it is uh, the uh, Biggie Smalls. He did? I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah. It, I've seen this. Sh- I've seen this shirt around everywhere. Yeah, it's it's a Biggie Smalls with the with you know the lightning bolt kind of thing going across his head. But I think that's an iconic in itself. Is that album cover? And then you know, obviously um, the songs on there, the Gene Genie, I think is probably the most popular one on there. If if I'm probably know. yeah. And then Let's Spend the Night Together, obviously. One that really stood out to me was uh, Cracked Actor. Yeah, yeah.
0: There's something about that song. I Talk about a deep cut that is just, it really resonated with
1: me. You know, another cool thing about this time is how many people would actually cover off of each other. Um, Oh, yeah. And and that's what I kind of love, because I kind of do like that Let's Spend the Night Together cover on here. But, like, you don't see that as much anymore. I guess it's... The Well, and there's some history to that a little bit. We should get into some other time about covers. But, um, you know, obviously, a lot of people covered Davey, David Bowie songs. Uh, he covered a lot as well. Um, Absolutely. Oh, yeah. We are,
0: we are going to talk about... We'll, we'll have an, an entire episode on just covers because we fucking love that shit. And everyone needs to, again, understand why damn things matter even there. But before we move on from Aladdin Sane... I, 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 I will say it didn't touch me as much as I think some of his later work, I think it it is incredibly influential again, cracked actor really speaks to me Mm -hmm. in volumes, uh, musically and artistically. And, but we start to see David go down some dark paths with his cocaine addiction and, um, When we get to Diamond Dogs in 1974, I would argue that this was truly the beginning of the Thin White Duke, even though it didn't come out until later. Yeah. uh, Until, I believe it's 1976 was Station to Station. But when I listen to Diamond Dogs, it's so rough. Everything's rough. The songwriting's rough. The production's rough. The the cover art is very rough looking. It's probably the closest thing he did to punk. And a lot of people would argue that he was... Uh, the godfather of a lot of punk sounds before new wave was new wave was new wave right
1: yeah and i and i think this is kind of you you were starting to see a trans yeah like you said the the sound was different you're starting to see him kind of try to pull away from the ziggy kind of era a little bit um well he had to retire the character he did it famously on stage (laughs) because
0: it was consuming his life
1: (laughs) But I, I mean, Rebel Rebel, obviously the big hit off of this one, um, another classic. Um, so, yeah, it's it's uh, I it, you know, yes, it is rough. Again, it's it's kind of one of my favorite ones, again, um, just because of that raw uh, sound. Okay. Um, but, you know, I think he was changing his sound and he was changing the way things were. And like you said, it, things were dark, but we we, we we're just kind of scratching the surface of what really he was starting to kind of experiment with and he had to do
0: that yes to evolve i mean <laughs> it's impossible if you look at any great artist they're gonna have even though uh, relatively speaking their their whatever their output it is is still probably better than a lot of other stuff it may i've always said relative to their you know filmography or, discography or history it may be a low point yeah. and i think diamond dogs is a bit of a low point yeah uh, for his uh, discography and his career uh but right around the corner we saw a i i would argue a high point and that's young american young americans in 1975
1: yeah he had a couple of live albums i think in between there young americans was again another kind of kind of leaving that uh glam rock style and, and showing more of that um, kind of R&B and soul sound that he had. He famously called it <laughs> uh,
0: self-proclaimed plastic soul because <laughs> yeah. he was trying to do what a lot of musicians back there did. He was influenced by a lot of African-American sounds and he wanted that quote-unquote black sound mm-hmm. and arguably he got it in a lot of ways. He would even, I think a lot of... Uh, black artists black musicians african-american really liked i mean fame he, he got to play fame on uh soul train
1: yeah one of the uh first white artists ever on soul train and f- yeah fame obviously i think was uh co-written by fame. i could just like hear that little oh it's it's so good well in in here and, and going on a little tangent here but one thing that i you know with with british artists especially early rock artists they really embraced uh black musicians more than we did in america and i think you know it, it, this came out i i think in the two thousand. remember when i am I'm, I'm forgetting the name of the album but the rolling stones came out with like another blues album like I don't, I want to say in the past 15 years or something like that. I can't remember which one it was, but they were doing some blues and they were, you know, asking about why did you bring this out back? And, you know, Mick Jagger said something along the lines that this style of music has always been there. You Americans just have just forgotten it and you didn't treasure it. And I, and I feel like, you know, the Beatles were one of those bands. I mean, you know, big influence on them was Chuck Berry, you know, David Bowie of the same. I mean, you listen to soul And all these things. And and that's why I was saying with the covers thing, we need to talk about that sometime is because covers kind of have a dark history as well a little bit. You would have a cover written by a black artist and then you would have... or I'm sorry, a song written by a black artist. And then you would have a cover uh, for the white audience recorded by a white musician. And that usually would be... Oh, yeah. Uh,
0: Elvis did this. Uh, Led Zeppelin has been sued for this. Yeah. Uh, I think it's different when it... (sighs) there's a big there's a thin line between cover and really giving yeah. the previous songwriter credit and royalties to the to the version that that the artist made and a little bit of stealing stealing yeah. and kind of putting their spin on it i i love led zeppelin with a fiery fiery passion but they would straight up steel songs and, and they wouldn't even try to cover it up. They would often say it was a tribute, but they would use the exact, I mean, the the musicality would be very different. It would be, you know, a hard rock song and not a traditional blue song, uh, but the lyrics would be exactly the same. And, uh, but yeah.
1: But no, I just want to point this out before we move on. Um, in the early infancy of MTV, even you can, you can go YouTube this interview, but Uh, David Bowie was being interviewed by uh, MTV and called them out during his interview asking, why aren't you playing enough black artists like he was watching MTV and noticing that they were only playing black artists like at two or three in the morning, predominantly white artists during the day. And I think that was a big kind of changing moment in MTV where they kind of started, you know, kind of changing their tone a little bit and started playing more of those. He was one of the people that was really calling MTV out publicly because of that. So again, this is a great, a great album, great transition, but also brought in a lot of, um, you know, people to appreciate that those contributions by those artists.
0: Absolutely. And, and I think we'll, as we move on, we'll continue to see that love and that, uh, collaboration, uh, camaraderie and him again, Incorporating a lot of different sounds into his own sound, mm-hmm. and uh, and we saw that right away with uh, Station to Station in 1976. I would I also want to note that this was uh, the very first year he starred, He had a starring role in The Man Who Fell to Earth, mm. uh, which also brought about officially The Thin White Duke. And I think th- this album was uh, another pivotal one. It doesn't, in my opinion, it's so underrated. It does not give, it does not get the attention it deserves, mm-hmm. and I I, abs- I absolutely love it. It's one of my favorites. In fact, um, of course, we're going to talk, we'll give a little more detail to Low, Heroes, and Lodger, the Berlin trilogy, right after this. But I do want to. I feel like when people talk about Bowie, they gloss
1: over station to station, and I think
0: it deserves a lot more praise.
1: Yeah, and I mean. Obviously, the big hit on this one was Golden Years. Um, Golden Years, yeah, that one's lasted. But I, I, I do agree with you. This is one that people skip. Um, this is a, again one of my. I love this era of Bowie as well. You know, it's it's like chapters in a book, really. Yeah. When you're talking about him, and it's it's another great, you know, beginning to another great chapter.
0: Now, before we go down the rabbit hole of the Berlin Trilogy, I do want to stay, stay on Station to Station just a little longer and uh, because uh, a standout song, in my humble opinion, is Wild as the Wind because it really showcases his vocal register and his ability to sing, his ability as a vocalist. Uh, his range and his dynamics are impeccable and we would be amiss of course to not talk about bowie bowie's vocals before we end this podcast and i think this is a good place to uh sit on that for a little bit because not only was he influential musically and aesthetically and visually and you know there's a long there's a long laundry list right but just in his vocals alone this is where you know for all those other things but most importantly his vocals I want to put him in the category of I think a long running series in our podcast which is what I'm going to call the one and onlys. No one has ever come before him and I don't think anybody will come after him. And David Bowie is definitely in that category. I mean, you can if 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 someone licenses movie, his music in a movie and you hear that timbre in his voice, that tone, you know it's him immediately.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. And what was it somebody I just it was Tim Heidecker that was doing an impression of him and said he had a distinctive way of talking or speaking. And it was you have to change your S's into Z's. I mean, that's just like one thing that's just simply David Bowie.
0: I always think of *Inglorious Bastards, that uh, that middle scene. And the song really sticks out. It it really kind of steals the scene. And uh, it, it does fit in the scene but it's almost distracting it's the song is so good and the scene is so pivotal that i kind of forget what's going on on screen a little bit sometimes Mm -hmm. when i watch the movie again okay let's do it we're going to talk about the berlin trilogy i I, i'm gonna get i don't i well you i think you already kind of told me what your favorite bowie album is we're gonna we're gonna save that to the end um you can just straight up tell me or I may guess. I don't know. But I imagine that one of your top five is in this trilogy. Oh yeah. And we'll start with Lowe and as the um Novo Day family resident Bowie connoisseur, I'm gonna give you the floor to start.
1: Uh this is this is this is a pivotal album for me. Uh, musical journey that I kind of had as a young man. I, I don't know how to describe this. When I've told people, right, people have asked me, "What are some albums that I should just listen to?" From just back be honest, back.
0: just be honest with us.
1: This is the one that I say. It 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 is something. When I first listened to it, I was blown away because it sounded like something similar to like what would have came out in the two thousands or something like that. And and how I got into this album was. Um, was going through kind of this uh, going back and listening to some music that I, I liked when I was younger and didn't really understand what was going on or the tone. And I got really into nine inch nails and um, downward spiral. I was reading about it and kind of, you know, what inspired Trent Reznor. And he said, he was listening to this album a lot. And I said, Oh, well, maybe I should check it out. And low was, I checked it out and I was like, Whoa, um i totally understood it it's a it's dark it's eerie it's it's totally something i just was not expecting to ever listen to from this time period and it, it brought me to other bands like can you know kind of going to this whole
0: craft work new, new all those guys New, yeah.
1: oh yeah <laughs> new but all this this sound that was coming out of uh you know west germany at the time That was revolutionary and way ahead of its time
0: it's arguably uh, it's 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 two albums in one
1: yeah right
0: it's there's traditional song structure in the first half and then ambient ambient uh, odyssey of movements in the second half
1: yeah and it's uh like you know sound and vision obviously it's a this one so yeah you're totally right where you have like um what is it the first side side one that's kind of more of a traditional suck Structure and then side two, which is
0: what stood out to you? What song is the centerpiece, if
1: you will? Putting me on the spot here, man.
0: Huh? Yep, we're gonna do that sometimes.
1: Subterraneans, okay. I, okay, I don't, yeah. And I, I need to dive back into this and really, I, I've listened to this album so many times.
0: For me, it's Warzawa.
1: Warzawa, yeah. I was, I it feel was like that
0: is. Oh my god, I I keep going back to the word Odyssey. It's a yeah. science fiction. Uh, it's just this Odyssey of sounds and and soundscapes and movements, and I I I love it.
1: And then get, look again about the you know around the time it was coming out, eight or nine years before that, when you know like Space Oddity came out, you you were having this kind of revolution in society and also this amazing technological achievement. And then in 76, when this was recorded, and I think it came out in 77, you know, think again about like kind of the the times that we were living in at the time, 77, uh, even though this came out very early in 1977. 1977 is when we had like a, a revolution in film. Uh, we had Star Wars come out. That was probably one of the first blockbusters. But I, I mean, you just think in film of um, the transition that it was going through at the time. Where you were kind of, you had this crash of filmmaking. We're starting to see like this kind of era of blockbusters and things, and science fiction was becoming, you know, more mainstream. So, this was um, this was an interesting time, the late seventies, I think, just artistically, both in film and in music.
0: Absolutely. So, tell us about your thoughts on heroes, then.
1: Yeah. So, heroes—the second one in the trilogy. I mean. <laughs> probably um i've i've used this album cover as my facebook profile pic back in the day <laughs> quite a bit um but you know obviously the song heroes it's a standout you've you've heard that i think that one's been covered
0: what some a million it's, it's, this is actually another song i i didn't know was his originally like it, it's been covered so many times i thought it was like the, the wallflowers i think who did
1: I was going to yeah. say, was it the Wallflowers cover? Yeah, yeah.
0: And uh, who's who's Dylan's son, right? Isn't that Bob Dylan's son? Uh, yeah, so, um, and another one that has two halves to it. As I was re-listening to it, it's, there's some traditional song structure in the middle. And then talk about Risks as a... Oh, yeah. uh, as uh you know from from a business standpoint from you know if i was like an industry producer or like an executive mm-hmm. i would be like i could see them like yelling in his in his face and like the meetings of like you have the second album is just instrumentals what are you doing
1: <laughs> but it's a, it's amazing work yeah and and again if you if you really want to do a a few hour dive in the music is really this entire trilogy and just play it from front to back absolutely
0: and uh that's a good uh another good segue to end with lodger the third album yeah. of the trilogy and this is a little i mean it's still very very uh progressive yeah and uh just very rich and and tonal structure and and innovation and all the things we've been uh you know gushing about but it, it is a little return to form i thought yeah. when I, I listened to it again it's it's a lot more of the songs he likes to write
1: yeah yeah so it, i mean it, yeah like you said I, I i think it's you know probably you know the first two are probably the one the the, the two before this were probably more well-known um, but yeah, it was more of a, we, we did skip one thing that I want to talk about. And for all those that, you know, are unfamiliar with this, I, I really want you to take the time. His cover of a uh, Peace on earth and little drummer boy with Bing Crosby. And why I say this is if you ever deep want
0: another deep cut, we should have a bell or something.
1: If you're ever, you know, <laughs> drinking some eggnog around the holidays and, uh, <laughs> sitting around with the family and feeling like you need a, a good, uh, awkward laugh. pick me up <laughs> uh watch this video of this because oh my god it's it's oil and water together
0: what's it like
1: well it, it's 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 cringy it, it's awkward and cringy it's it's basically
0: <laughs> good kind of cringy or bad kind of cringy
1: great kind of cringy it's basically kind of cringy, okay. uh yeah so i i highly i highly suggest you do this i laugh every time i watch it i i don't know if people get my <laughs> my sense of humor they probably will too but basically, the premise is uh, Day, er, uh, Bing Crosby is staying at like a relative's house in England. And this young gentleman walks up to his, his door and asks if he could play on his piano. Um, and he goes, oh, are you that chap from uh, America that does all the singing? <laughs> And He's like, Yeah, I'm uh I'm, I'm the guy, blah ba-ba-ba-ba-bing crosby, and then he they like sing a duet. <laughs> you can obviously tell the contempt the two men men have for each other. And the story goes is that they had a ridiculously hard time filming this, and they both did not really like each other, and it's evident on the screen,
0: it's, it it it's the, <laughs> it, it oozes out of the it, screen, it right?
1: Out. So it is considered like another holiday classic, but you can tell that both of them don't want to be there and they're doing it because they're just getting their paycheck and getting the F out of it. But <laughs> Wanted to bring that up. That was in 1977. It's something that still cracks me up today. Right in line with Arnold Schwarzenegger talking about Krampus during Christmas. <laughs> hilarious And another video, which you have to watch because he says, in Christmas, we had the devil. So you got to watch that too.
0: No, thank you. I, I, I feel like that concludes uh, late 60s, 70s era's Bowie. <laughs> right there and we can move on to the 80s oh yeah and and the 80s was literally right away when i re-listened to scary monsters and super creeps right away i can hear the dichotomy the shift in production and tone in uh, a little bit of songwriting Uh, super creep is probably my favorite of that era a lot of people would argue it's it you know let's dance is is uh the, the album of his in, for the 80s but i think yeah. super creeps is 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 a little more industrial it's a little more progressive and and of course it just oozes that 80s production sound right
1: yeah this is definitely another tonal shift but yeah this is definitely kind of i made this one for me and i'll make the other one for you kind of thing i can i can kind of say i feel like let's dance is the one for you I feel yeah. like Super Creeps
0: is the one for me and Let's Dance is the one for you. No? You disagree?
1: Uh, yeah. I, I mean, I, it, it could be argued. I, I don't know. I, I. Super Creep is, it, I don't know. It, it's the one that I, I probably least <laughs> l- listen to oh man okay i realize
0: we're on uh, together again like a lot of things we love uh we feel we are the puzzle pieces for the for whatever artistic medium we're talking about Mm -hmm. you're on one end of the spectrum i'm on the other end so we can we can definitely fill in those gaps and uh what better way to do that than actually talk about let's dance uh a dance album that's not really (laughs) danceable at least to today's standards with EDM and shit. Uh, But I do want to talk about the fact that this was, uh, this is considered his peak success, I think commercially and critically, not critically, uh, but a lot of, when I would read like biographies about him and things like that, I think this is where, a lot of people see the top of the mountain mountain before it kind of starts to come down. And I can kind of see that yeah. because he only had two more albums after this, uh, tonight in 1984 and never let me down in 1987. And this yeah. is where we, he started, he started to lean more into uh, theater and acting and, and my favorite role of his and for all time will be labyrinth in oh, 1986 is yeah. Gareth, the goblin king.
1: Yep. I think that's an iconic for people are, our age um who grew up watching that movie before i even knew he was a musician that was the first introduction to david bowie was labyrinth yeah yeah i didn't know i didn't know who he was like, labyrinth
0: in that fucking costume
1: and that freaking leotard man <laughs> so oh
0: my gosh it, let's it uh like a
1: lot of that was going on a lot in the 80s <laughs> prince like like living in bulge like? city that's what I oh like to yeah. Say. yeah living
0: in bulge city a little bit leaving nothing
1: to the imagination
0: nothing to the imagination <laughs> Which, um, moving on, we love Labyrinth, and I'll talk, about that a little, I'll talk about that a little later, but I do want to talk about the fact that, uh, again, before the 90s hit, he was experimenting again, and I think this uh, goes back into our thesis of evolution, exploration, things like that. He even tried to, ev- unsuccessfully, try to get in just a band again. I think for a long time, David Bowie was tired of the spotlight. Yeah. He just wanted to be a side man again. And he tried to do this in 1988 with Tin Machine. And uh, a lot of people wanted him, they kept pulling him, you know? Of course, yeah. I think you could say that there was fate or destiny with him being this star, this idol, this everything that we we look up to in the, in the music world. And, and this is maybe a testament to that. He's like, you know what? I'm just going to do some acting, put out a couple albums. And in fact, I just want to be like in the, in the background again with Tin Machine. Uh, The audience was not happy about that.
1: And this was a time when you saw in the eighties, especially a lot of super groups forming, you know, you saw like on the country end, there was the Highwaymen. There was also the traveling, uh, is it the traveling Wilburys? which had like George Harrison, uh, Tom Petty.
0: I don't know that one off the top of my yeah. head.
1: So I, I mean, but, but, but yeah, I'm the thinking-
0: point is super groups were, were being yeah. formed left and right.
1: These guys were getting older and they were kind of wanting to collaborate uh, tin machine, obviously, but yeah, they were trying to basically, you had another kind of super group or, or
0: that, in a lot of ways, concludes the 80s a little bit for this discussion, at least. I do want to say that he did have a pretty substantial role in The Last Temptation of Christ, and he was even in the Twin Peaks movie. And then we get to the 90s. We need to tackle the 90s. The 90s, we saw Electronica Bowie. We saw Jungle Drum and Bass Bowie and a lot of Return to Form, of course. In 1993, we had Black Tie White Noise, which, again, pushed into a lot of Electronica sounds, a lot of stuff we saw in the 90s um, with, obviously, Trent Rezzer, Nine Inch Nails, uh, and Industrial Sounds, uh, a lot of use of synthesizers. But for that, I mean, synthesizers were used... In the '70s too, for a long time with Kraftwerk, but it, but it was, a, like certain
1: sound, yeah, but it was a certain sound. Yeah, it was a certain sound in the '90s that
0: they were trying to capture. Right,
1: the the, the anti-pop kind of, yeah.
0: Right. He made a uh, soundtrack album, uh, "The Buddha of Suburbia," 1993. Outside, I think Earthling really stood out to me. 1997. This is where he did uh, jungle, uh, jungle drum and bass, drill, drum and bass type of sounds, and I, I, and some of it worked, some of it didn't. But I, at least, again, going back to our thesis, he was he was exploring things. He was he was trying something new. He was innovating. He was he'd never ever ever stayed into his old sounds. Really, he, he definitely had that writing. He had a writing style, and he had a DNA to his sounds, uh, to his songs. Of course, he did because he would sing on all of them. So that very that very specific Bowie timber, like we talked about, is is it connects them all right but the album from album album is dramatically different
1: yeah and i you know i am afraid of americans is obviously i think the big one in this era so yeah so that was so that was a big one dead man walking kind of stuck out with me for a weird reason um it's because i think i saw it on late night tv or something when i was a kid I, i was either saturday night live or letterman and his guitar player was basically dressed like a crow uh but um i always kind of like that song um since then so i I don't know i have always kind of liked this album a little bit
0: the uh the uh, the decade finished up with hours in 1999 which is very late 90s kind of a sound but going back to david bowie's return to form and basics Mm -hmm. it wasn't It was just old-fashioned song, right? Again, but with those production styles of the late '90s, and and there was this very quintessential form of a ballad that was made at the time, and he really picked up on that and ran with it, and to to good effect. A lot of the songs were, even though there weren't like crazy huge hits, they're good songs, relatively speaking, to a lot that was going on in 1999. Yeah. From there, we enter uh, the new. Uh, Millennium 2002, he uh, released Heathen. He tried to actually release an album during the middle of uh, between Hours and Heathen called Toy, but that was never released. i was actually leaked to the internet years later, but never formally released to a uh, Gen audience. 2003, we saw Reality, and one of my favorite roles from him in 2006 was uh, playing Tesla and The Prestige.
1: Yes. One of my favorite movies. Um, Actually, uh, first time I ever saw it was with one of your old roommates. The one that I went to, I had, was in the same major as. Um, Uh, Yes. But yeah. We'll leave names out of it. We'll leave names out of this. But he was like, hey, man, uh, do you want to, like, come over and watch a movie before we go out later uh i got this new movie it has like david bowie and it's about magicians
0: and it's 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 by a filmmaker we absolutely love here at ndp which is christopher nolan we can't get enough of his work and uh yeah it was it was a perfect uh, i read that he like went out of his way to get david bowie to play this role and honestly i couldn't see anybody doing else doing it
1: yeah no it was it was perfect it's it's kind of he i think for a lot of people kind of see saw him as tesla after that um but uh, fun great, fact great, great
0: movie here here's a fun fact for you that i uh, that i learned in my research was uh denis Villeneuve for uh the new blade runner movie he asked uh david bowie to be the villain before jared leto was uh oh,
1: took man. on the role i'm not sure if you knew that i didn't know that in the, oh my god that would but it makes awesome. sense right i could yeah. see bowie playing that role do you want bowie or cult leader i would take bowie <laughs> did you know that jared leto is like he has like his own little cult I, is it a cult it, it yeah
0: is it like a literal cult like I, fucking I drink know. the kool-aid it cult do with like 30
1: seconds to mars or something like that but
0: so this is just a, a rapid fan base not a cult cult
1: i i don't know i we, we may need to do a show diving into it <laughs>
0: i'm gonna pull it back on that note i'm gonna pull it back and talk about uh the fact that mr bowie had an unfortunate heart attack at this time and that's part of the reason that he had no output from 2003 to 2013 musically of course he was in the prestige in 2006 but we didn't see anything until a surprise drop with the next day which yeah. was again, uh, I would say, a return to form. I it, again, just really good old fashioned songwriting.
1: Yeah, yeah, I agree with you on that. It, was, it Ta-
0: was, and we have to talk about the album cover for a little bit because what he did was <laughs> he used the a Heroes album cover and just put a big block in the middle that said the next day. I thought, I thought there was some genius to that. I thought that was genius.
1: Yeah, yeah, I bet definitely. People will see it and kind of recognize it off the bat so or see some familiar, familiar. I feel like there was
0: so much there's such a statement in that in that way of releasing the album art with because uh, no one has ever done that before either let's use an old piece of not oh, not to my knowledge someone yeah. can tweet at me and say well this fucking guy did it but you know please correct me if <laughs> I'm wrong we, we like to be corrected here
1: and it definitely looks like something that was like created in MS Paint it was created what say like that again in MS Paint or like word oh. <laughs> like it's just like a block and then just like like,
0: "Eh, yeah i don't let's just do this guys let's just put this here and
1: just call just put in regular black font the next day oh that's a good idea yeah yeah Yeah. let's do it you can do whatever you want man you just go for it (laughs) and before his
0: passing we got what i think is his best work since i want to say let's dance and that is 2016's black star There's a lot we want to say about here. Uh, Not enough time. I want to start with not only is this the best work he's done in a long time, about almost 20 years, but, uh, or a little over, but uh, it was, it was uh, Bowie went jazz. Yeah. You know, it was his jazz record that he never... Usually in people's careers, when we see them, especially when they start in the late 60s or 70s, they may have a tangent album that maybe Mm -hmm. is not very successful, and they experiment with, you know, jazz fusion or prog jazz, like, you know, the Mahavishnu Orchestra guys, or, you know, Billy Cobham, John McLaughlin, those guys. And Bowie never did that. And for some reason, he decided to end on that note.
1: Yeah, this, this album... I mean, if you listen to it, he died a couple of days after it came out. Um, Two days. Was it two days? Yeah.
0: It was two days. It came out on his birthday, the 8th, and he died on the 10th.
1: And it was a shock because I don't think a lot of people knew how ill he was. You know, the cool thing about the album is it was... He recorded it with some local musicians from New York. Unknowns, really. Maybe in the jazz scene in New York, they were known, but... um, you know, got them together, recorded this. Nobody really knew about it, that he was doing this. Um, but if you listen to yeah, they, it.
0: They had to sign NDAs and shit.
1: Yeah. If you. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like it yeah. was
0: a secret secret. Like, do not tell anybody until this drops.
1: If if you listen to this, like I said, there's a lot of emotion to it because this is obviously his swan song. This is his gift. Um, yeah. He knew he was dying and it's apparent in the lyrics and you can hear it in the music.
0: Absolutely, like um, it. It's like uh, so. It, it kind of shakes you with the lyrics and the and the musicality of it, it in terms of mortality.
1: Yeah, when I heard Black Star for the first time, the song, I it, it it moved me. I I it, it felt I felt like my heart was I, this is cliche, but my heart was sinking when I was listening to it. Um, and that and that and that's what you know. When you have albums like this, and especially, again, you know, a lot of artists, a lot of these guys that have been around for a while, they, they keep releasing albums, but it's kind of at diminishing returns. So they're they're never as good as they, they used to be. And again, they, they
0: kind of lose it a little bit. They, they lose, lose their it. touch, but not. Not this guy.
1: Or if you're like Jimmy Buffett, you just make the same song for like 50 years.
0: To here. my point at the beginning of the episode. Yeah. You know, they kind of, they get stuck in the past, right? They get stuck right?
1: in the past, but I mean, I, like you said, this is one of his greatest albums he's ever made. Um, it is, it's, it's, it's a beautiful goodbye, as I would like to call it.
0: Absolutely. Perfectly put. And I think a very good place to, to end. Yeah. It's a beautiful goodbye. And uh, I would be amiss to not talk about uh, some other things Mr. Bowie did before he uh, passed. He was an avid art collector. He was a painter himself. He experimented, experimented with uh, traditional fine art. And he was often even compared to uh, Picasso, not for his his fine art, but for his artistry overall. And to conclude the episode, had a lot to say, but I feel like biographer Thomas Fergett really said it best and i quote because he has succeeded in so many different styles of music it is almost impossible to find a popular artist today that has not been influenced by david bowie thank you so much for listening but before we go of course we want to talk about a little icing on the cake if you will as we like to put it with the gym of the week i'm gonna let you start Mr. Buck?
1: Yeah, so this is David Bowie related. Uh, My gym of the week for you guys all to go check out is something called Dave by Radio Soul Wax. If you don't know who Soul Wax is um, or they also go by the name Too Many DJs, it's a group of uh, brothers from Belgium. Uh, They are musicians, but um, Radio Soul Wax was a project that they did um, as part of their electronic experimentation, and it is a uh, video as well as a mix-up kind of, I would say, mixtape party tape of just David Bowie music. So uh, check out Dave by Radio Soul Wax. It's, it's, it's really cool. Okay, we will
0: do that. Mine is um, a bit of a deep cut of the entire Jesus Christ. This guy put out so much work, so much output of his entire catalog. I want to talk about my favorite song of his entire body, of work, and that is a deep cut, and actually, <laughs> the soundtrack from Labyrinth, uh, the uh, one of the five song you wrote for that uh, soundtrack, and that song is called "As the World Falls Down." As the World Falls Down is not only a beautifully crafted song; i it it transports me, you know, to my youth. It may transport you as well, and it uh, we all hold different memories and different kinds of art. And music is an easy vessel for that, of course. And as the world falls down, always reminds me of a better time. Sometimes in my youth, and uh, I tear up a little bit every time I hear it. So please, not only check out the entire labyrinth soundtrack. I think it's a beautifully crafted body of work there, but the song "As the World Falls Down." And I did want to do, I I did want to do a bit of a stretch gym of the week. Uh, just because I've been listening to now this guy isn't in the David Bowie canon. He's another musician during this era. And I think he's just amazing. I, I, I'm not sure how I didn't get into him before, but his name is Keith Jarrett. Uh, he's a pianist, a pianist. Uh, during that you know that era of sixties and seventies, things like that, and he did mostly instrumental work. But he was a- absolutely breathtaking in his uh, piano figures. Sometimes he would do solo albums. Sometimes he would do albums with full bands. But uh, he's absolutely spellbinding as a as a musician. So please check that out if you or- if you already uh, or if you haven't already. And from there, you can follow us on a lot of different platforms. Of course, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram at at underscore novo underscore day and at novoday media you can all f- also follow us at, at novodayproductions.com where you can find some of our work which includes entropy sessions, adulteration, post meridium, and a lot more to come. And um, until next time, guys, you know, be good to each other. And as always, good luck and Godspeed. We love you guys. Art of the Beholder is brought to you by Novo Day Productions, created and hosted by Novo Day and the Novo Day Collective. Facebook.com slash NovoDayMedia at NovoDayMedia on Twitter and Instagram. Music by A Company. Facebook.com slash AcoMusic123 Aco on Spotify. Logo designed by Tom Justice, J-E-S-T-U-S of thejusticecompany.com and executively produced by Clayton Anderson. All rights reserved.